This podcast was first broadcast on Fresh FM, the top of the South community access radio station. For more information on Fresh FM, as well as links to other great local podcasts, go on our website freshfm.net or download the accessmedia.nz app. Kia ora, I'm Charlie Cuff, a Year 10 student from Nelson College, and welcome to the Gen Z Time Machine. In this episode, I talked to Sandy Stevens about her experiences working for the United Nations in Liberia. There was a coup that, while I was there, and the Minister of Agriculture that I was working with was executed. And so I assumed they would send me home, but they didn't, because the new government, which was... If you know anything about the history of Liberia, it was, it was where they freed the slaves from America and they kind of took over the country and the indigenous people were pushed back into the bush mm-hmm. and the colonisation it really was by black uh, freed slaves mm-hmm. was running the country and the coup was about the indigenous people rising up against those Americo-Liberians as they called them mm-hmm. and uh, slaughtering, it was a bloodbath and they slaughtered also all the ministers at the time and they set up their own parliament And most of the UN staff at that time was evacuated, but I wasn't because the new government really wanted me to stay because our program was directly uh, helping their people in the remote parts of the country. But they wouldn't send any more UN staff for another year. So I had a whole year to go round all the villages and set up village committees to discuss what kinds of projects they wanted and how they could contribute. So the idea was we would help them if they would allocate the resources, land, building materials, whatever they needed, if they wanted a school or a water supply or a bridge or a road, but they had to do with the labour and provide the, the timber and so on. And we would help with things they couldn't get, like roofing iron or concrete cement to make concrete, because the wattle and door ways of building a building which is sticks with mud, mm. um, the termites would eat those in about five years, so we wanted more permanent building mm. materials like mud bricks and iron roof and concrete floors. Mm-hmm. So lots of schools and clinics were built and they provided staff to be trained. We provided the training. Mm-hmm. So they had village health workers in each clinic, just dealing with basic hygiene and cough medicine and worm treatment and skin disease treatment, very basic things. And we also set up shops in each village because they didn't have monetary trade. They had just barter, mm-hmm. trading goods between tribes. So that took a while for them to get used to using money and not <laughs> spending it all before they thought of replacing the goods in the shop. Mm-hmm. Um, and also new technologies. They were doing everything like labour-intensive ways of drying corn or they didn't think of solar dryers which could speed up the process. They put the corn out in the sun each day and bring it in each night and that would have to go on for maybe 20 or 30 days every day where mm-hmm. you could have a solar dryer with a tin roof over and do it in three days. Mm-hmm. So simple technology, smoking fish to make it keep for longer, making peanuts into peanut sauce or peanut butter that would keep in jars or bottles for months instead of days. Mm-hmm. So that was four years in Liberia. And while I was there, well, there was the coup which made it a bit slow. And so in four years, I guess we established quite a few projects, 113 
villages took part in this program in eastern Liberia, which was 800 kilometres from the capital. But that was a plus for us because we didn't have much interference from outsiders. Mm -hmm. Politicians can be very destructive when you try to get a project based on self-help. Mm -hmm. You mm -hmm. said that there was a coup that mm -hmm. happened while you were there. Was that was the country always quite fractured um, before? Yes, it was. There were um, about 10 or 12 tribes whose languages had not been written down. Mm -hmm. So the language was English for official matters. And as I said, the freed slaves were labelled, they're now labelled Congo people, but they called them Americo-Liberians in those days. And they dominated, they sort of took over the coastline and a few kilometres back. And they would have big companies like Firestone growing rubber for export um, to feed their own factories in the US. And that meant that the they dominated the economy, the monetary economy, and the indigenous people had the subsistence economy without money, just growing food and what they needed for thatch and, and wheelbarrows for transport, whatever. So the divide, the inequality was very, very obvious and there was a lot of resentment. And even when I first went there and worked with the Minister of Agriculture to design the project, he said to me, there's trouble brewing. And I could sense it too when we went round to each province that there was this resentment against him and his government officials. They didn't want to do anything they were told they should do for the government. And how the coup came about was the non-commissioned officers in the army, who were the indigenous people, all the officers were Americo-Liberians, and the indigenous people were the slaves, really. So they rose up and took over the country, because they outnumbered the officers by far, but of course they they didn't have access to all the weaponry that the America Liberians had, but they overpowered them eventually by some plotting and a very clever master sergeant who became a five-star general overnight. Mm -hmm. mm. How did the coup impact your work there? Oh, it stopped it. Mm -hmm. For about three months we couldn't really do anything. But I was, as I said, I was 800 kilometres from the capital, Monrovia, and so the army people there were very, they were, they were good to me because they didn't, they wanted me to stay. The ones that were married were all evacuated because they had children either in the country or in boarding schools somewhere and they had to take care of their families. But single people were allowed to stay as long as they felt safe. And I did feel safe, although if I'd been in Monrovia I wouldn't have because a lot of single people were raped and killed, uh, foreigners there. But I, I, I felt safe. And the other thing was the Americo-Liberians had bought Masonic lodges to Liberia. Mm -hmm. And they dressed in morning suits and top hats and went to their meetings. Um, only Americo-Liberians could go to those buildings. And where I was in Cape Palmas, there was a huge Masonic lodge. And the indigenous tribal people wanted to know what happened in there. Because they practiced sorcery and witchcraft and cannibalism and so on. And they assumed that that's what the American Liberians were doing in those Masonic lodges. But they were too scared to go into them alone. So I said I would go and look mm -hmm. and tell them what was in there. So they all came and stood around and I went into the lodge. I was the only foreigner in the area by this time. It was several hundred kilometres before I could see another white person. But 
Um, I went in and the first floor was just un uninteresting, really, chairs and tables and things. The second floor was offices, desks and drawers and filing cabinets and so on, but the top floor was the interesting one, that was the third floor. The roof was like a disco, it had little stars twinkling and lights and, and, and lots of little rooms with mattresses in them and karaoke and it was clearly a, a disco come brothel. And so the freezer that they told me probably had bodies in it, it was full of beer and um, all sorts of booze. So I was able to tell the, the army people outside that this is what I saw and they could come in and they were quite safe and they wouldn't come in, they still wouldn't come in, but you know, I was a hero from then on. Mm -hmm. They all protected me. I had no problems with burglaries or anything from mm -hmm. that time onwards for four years. So I was well protected by them, thinking they thought I had magic powers. And I didn't, didn't tell them otherwise. <laughs> it suited my purposes. <laughs> how high up in the government were you working? Like, you said you were talking to the minister. Yes, well that's how it began, because it, we generated these things in the ministry in Monrovia. Mm -hmm. And then I designed a project, I discussed with the minister at the time, that the poorest parts of the country seemed to me to be the eastern provinces, three provinces, three counties they called them. And he agreed that we would design the project for those three counties first and if it worked well we'd spread it over to other counties which are in the, or on the north. The coastal counties were better off because they had trade and, and interaction with the outside world but the others just didn't and they needed a lot of help with everything. I, I suppose there are sort of four areas we're trying to help them. One was to increase productivity so they didn't have to work so hard to produce enough food. The second was to reduce the drudgery, the boring work that just took so long to do. Using a machete, for example, to peel garlic. <laughs> you could bring in simple little tools that would speed up that work hugely just by um, hand tools that didn't need machines or electricity or anything and didn't need spare parts. So that was the second objective. The third was probably health and well-being, to try and make the quality of their life and the and the quantity of life to extend their life expectancy a bit, better health and well-being. Mm -hmm. The fourth was to introduce choice because they did the same things that their grandparents and their great-great-great-grandparents did every day. Life never changed. Mm -hmm. And so when young people got a bit of education, the first thing they wanted to do was leave, get out of there. And there were no jobs. So looking at choice and what courses, what training or what technologies would open up choices. So I got, I had a budget of six million US dollars to do something in four years and so one of the expensive items was getting experts in from outside but I had to do that occasionally and one of the really high return actions was to get an intermediate technology specialist from London to come over and look at their technologies and see how they could improve them without introducing a whole lot of foreign machines that couldn't be maintained in Liberia mm. and he he was fantastic he spent about three months with us and then he went back and developed these technologies and came back with them and tested them in the field and then they spread we would subsidize them because it was hard work for people to raise twenty dollars by selling things in the market they just you know, put a bowl on their head and walk to the market for four hours and sell those things and then come back with $3 in their pocket after a day's work and 
you know, it was hard-earned cash. Mm. So things like that. Mud bricks were hugely beneficial too, making mud bricks to build buildings, whatever buildings they needed, instead of the wattle and daub that lasted such a short time with the termites. Mm. Toilets, because they didn't ever think of building toilets, they just went wherever, you know, you could trip over human feces anywhere. Wow. And so toilets made the parasitic worm infestations much less mm. and their productivity would increase just because they were healthier, stronger. I was amazed how in one year you could see a difference in the villages that used toilets. Their idea of how you get diseases, witch doctors and sorcerers and so on, and they had water devils and tree devils and this is what they thought brought disease. So to convince them there were little bugs in the water that they couldn't see that caused illness, that, that took a bit of convincing and a lot of them never believed it. I'd only been there a week when I saw them putting up some gallows by my house and I asked my driver what was going on and he said, oh, they're going to hang five people there tomorrow. And I said, what did they do? And he said, eating parts. And I said, what parts? And he didn't really want to tell me and I understand why, because they were parts that women don't have. So that was a practice that they believe gave them power and the government was trying to stop this practice of eating male genitals and so on, mm -hmm. by having a public hanging. Wow. And there was one woman and four men, and the woman was the cook. What year was this in? This was 19... I went there in 79 um, and I left in 83, 1983. Mm -hmm. So it was in those years. I mean, I said I never felt threatened and I didn't because I was female in that particular way I was safe. Yeah. but. In Papua New Guinea, they also used to eat brains of people that were clever, and they thought that would give them superior power. Did your life change much under the the new uh, military regime in Liberia, or were you just too far away from all of that? Um, there were very few government services in the area I worked in. Mm -hmm. I went to Monrovia once a month to get money, cash, because everything, there was no bank and everything had to be paid in cash. So I carried many thousands of dollars every month in the four-wheel drive we had to get to Monrovia, which took 22 hours mm -hmm. each way and in the wet season longer. Wow. And there were two shops that sold a bit of everything, like um, that have noodles and galvanised buckets and paint and, and glue and whatever but never what you wanted. And there was a guest house that put up government officials when they came to visit. There was electricity occasionally, but when it went off, it went off for a month, maybe at a time. Wow. So you didn't want to have your freezer stocked with too many food items. And then I, I bought a generator after a couple of years. I got sick of having no power. It's very hot and very not even a fan to keep you cool. Mm -hmm. So yes, but the generator was noisy. You, you can't have everything, I guess. What was transportation like? Uh, yes, we had a four-wheel drive Jimmy Chevrolet when I first went there. And then after the first year, when things settled down a bit, I was able to buy vehicles. We got um, Range Rovers, about four of them, and some utes. But most of 
the 113 villages we worked with, only about, I would say, 20 or 30 were on the road system. Mm -hmm. The rest we had to walk into them, and the longest walk was 13 hours. So when we went to that one, we had to stay two or three days and discuss what we were doing and get them to walk out to the vehicle, the truck, the utes, and get the timber or the corrugated iron or the bags of cement or whatever we were giving them and carry them in again. So it was fairly slow, but... Um, that was fine. And we all had motorbikes. Then I introduced crash helmets, which they'd never heard of before and thought was superfluous. <laughs> were the roads just fully dirt roads if they were? Yeah, dirt. Yeah. Mm. Mm. But like the Australian Outback, it was that mm. sort of road surface. So quite good in the dry season, but in the, month, in the wet season it was very slippery. And we had not only four-wheel drives, but we had winches on the front and back of the vehicle so that we could put a rope to a tree and pull ourselves out of trouble. And sometimes we went up in log canoes up the river to a village that was a bit, you know, it was easier than going by the tracks. Log canoes are fine if you don't lean over to the left or the right. They don't have a rudder, so they roll. Did you find it quite adventurous, like canoeing up rivers? Yeah, it was, it was. <laughs> because crocodiles and it's not... You don't know what you're going to encounter if you fall in. I never did fall in. But I did introduce swimming lessons for my local staff because I found to my surprise that they couldn't swim. And I thought it was highly dangerous, even with life jackets, to go in those canoes without being able to swim to shore at least. So every Monday morning for about six months we had swimming lessons. But I never thought I'd be a swimming teacher, and I was. <laughs> what were the uh, the... Native animals like the crocodiles. Yeah, well, the last elephant in Labia was killed by the army at the time of the coup because mm. they wanted a barbecue. Oh. But um, the wild animals we saw usually there was a cattle beast thing that lived in the jungle. It was like a cow, but a wild mm. cow. They were the prize trophy for the hunters if they got one of those and went back to the village with meat. The word for animal in the Gobo language is language of the people I was working with, was the same for meat or animal. The word was the same. Mm. Or like wood and timber, the word would be the same. Mm. So they had a very practical approach to resources. Everything had a purpose and it was named accordingly. Mm. So wild animals like the cow and there was a red deer type of, I think it was a red deer. It was quite a small deer anyway that was prized for food. And then they had the chickens I mentioned, the wild chickens that they kind of domesticated and they would, they didn't use the eggs, but they used the meat mm -hmm. to make soups. And the food was very hot with chilli. They used a lot of chilli and a lot of palm oil. So it was often quite red because palm oil's bright red. Mm -hmm. It's not the way we get it refined, but, and with chilli in it, it's even redder and it's very fiery. I bought lots of legumes. I took a sack of, I think, 50 kilograms with me when I first went because I knew that the meat in the market, well, I didn't want to eat it. It was covered in blowflies. If you could see the meat under the blowflies, then you might guess what it is, but it would, it would be brains or offal or muscle tissue. So legumes became a, a mainstay for me in Liberia. But I don't think I ever had an unbalanced meal that wasn't always the taste I would have liked. I asked one day what I was eating because I thought it was chicken and my driver told me it was tabadu and I said, what is tabadu? And he said, rat. 
and I wish he, I wish I hadn't asked because that meal did not taste good from then on, but it had tasted fine up to that point. <laughs> Great, it's been lovely to talk to you. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Join me, Charlie Cuff, next week on Fresh FM as we travel back in time through the last century in the Gen Z time machine. Thanks to New Zealand On Air for making this podcast available by funding the Access Media Project. Other great podcasts from Fresh FM are available through the accessmedia.nz app or our website freshfm.net.